Welcome to the Compass Church Podcast with Pastor Tim Jacobs, a ministry of Compass Church with your Arizona. Join us now as we look into God's Word to be challenged and changed. But you know, one of the things that every branch of the military has its own iteration of in some way or another is this idea that we should be looking out for one another. And so in the Air Force, it's basically what they have called the wingman concept. And so in the Air Force, everyone's supposed to have a wingman, someone that you, you go into um, battle with, someone that you are going to look out for and that they're going to look out for you. That we, in fact, in our Air Force Creed, in our Airman's Creed, there is a line that says, I will never leave an airman behind. And it's a very serious thing. It's an ethos built into our culture and in every culture of every branch of the armed services that we look out for one another, that we don't do things alone and that we keep our eyes out and how we can be encouraging and supporting one another because it's hard. And that concept is a beautiful one and it's so important, but it's not only important in the military, it's also important in the church as well. We have to be looking out for one another And while we say, well, what that means is we're praying for each other and we're walking with each other through tragedies and ups and downs that occur in life, there is another way that we can look out for each other that is different than we would normally think of. It's kind of nuanced. It's it's not something that's obvious, but it's really critical if we're going to be people who are going to have a wingman, who are going to have, who are going to be people who will be a wingman and looking out for one another and getting each other through the, the challenges and difficulties of this life. And so in our passage today, we're going to be talking about that, but the way that I could, could talk about this level of love is best offered to you in the form of a question. And the question is this. If you knew that something you had the freedom to do would cause someone else to be weakened in their faith if you did it, would you still do it? If you knew that something you had the freedom to do would cause someone else to be weakened in their faith if you did it, would you still do it? The title of the sermon today is Do This If You Want to Strengthen the People Around You. And in a moment, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And so if you want to find that in your Bible, otherwise you can follow along on the screen as we have the passages. But to give you a little bit of background, what we're talking about is in the city of Corinth, the ancient city of Corinth, which is in modern day Greece, they would worship, the, many of the people that were the Corinthian people would worship all kinds of gods and all kinds of temples. And so what you would do is, oftentimes the way they would worship these gods is by sacrificing an animal to, to that particular god, that particular idol. And they would take the meat from that sacrifice and then sell it in the marketplace and people could come buy it. In fact, it would be very difficult for you to buy any meat at all if it had not first been sacrificed to a god. And it would be tied up with these different rituals and rites and whatever that people could engage in that would be part of their worship of that particular deity. So the eating of the meat and the purchasing of the meat was often tied to the worship of these various gods. And so what would happen is Corinthians would become Christians. And as they become Christians, they would stop participating in all this temple worship stuff because they don't do that anymore. But now when it came to eating meat, they could not dissociate themselves 
well, dissociate the eating of the meat from the worship of the idol, right? Because it would be, it would trigger all these old habits and thoughts that they would have. Kind of like when you've, you've ever been in a relationship that's, you know, maybe a person was kind of psychotic or something, or, you know, it was a bad relationship, and it was just kind of all kinds of um, stress and everything, and so you guys have this, this relationship, and then you finally break up, but while you were together, let's say that you were, you know, huge John Mayer fans or something, and so you would always listen to this one particular John Mayer album, and over and over and over again, and it was kind of like, you know, your album with your songs together, and you realize everything went sideways and south, and it, you have all these bad memories. So now you can't even go into the grocery store and a, this particular John Mayer song comes on and you're like, I got to get out of here because it reminds you of, of the old relationship, right? It, it's sensory. And so for them, it would be like the, the smell of the meat and the sight of the meat, the taste of the meat would remind them of what they used to do and they, they couldn't separate the two. And so they would say, hey, listen, we just won't eat meat at all. And it became a thing in the church because there were other people that were saying, hey, eating meat's no big deal. It's just meat. Why would you not want to eat meat? What's wrong with you? Who cares if it was sacrificed to an idol? It's meat. We got to have it. And so on the one hand, they were kind of giving these people a hard time saying, don't you tell me I can't eat meat just because you can't handle it. You're too weak. Your conscience is too weak to deal with it. And on the other hand, there's people going, calling these guys out saying, hey, if you eat meat, you're basically worshiping these false gods. So it was becoming a thing, right? It was becoming a point of contention and division in the church. And so to get that background now is going to help us understand what the passage has to say. So let's read this um, starting with chapter 8, verse 1. He says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Now that was a common saying. That's why it's in quotes. Like kind of like a saying that everybody would have known. This knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now notice the contrast between knowledge and love. He says that knowledge puffs up. Because when you know something, you're like, hey, I know something. And it's all about you and your own ability and your acumen in this particular area. But love actually builds up the people around you. And it's really not about you at that point. So, you know, what is the knowledge that they had? So if you say there's knowledge and there's love and there's the contrast, what is the knowledge that he's talking about? Well, there's several kind of items of knowledge that I would give you. And the first piece of knowledge is basically like this. Idols are dumb. Everything is God's. Meat tastes good. So who cares? That was a legitimate point. That is accurate. Idols are dumb. Everything belongs to God. Meat tastes good. So who cares? Look at verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offers to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven on earth, just as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now he's saying, look, this is correct, this is right, and it challenges the prevailing thought of the day, and quite frankly, the prevailing thought of our day. Because back then, they'd have all these different gods, and the assumption would be that the gods would compete for each other, uh, for power with each other, and compete with each other, and, and then here's the, the god of Christianity that's kind of competing along with all these other gods, and Paul's like, no, 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 they're not gods, they don't actually exist, they're not real, they're not real, they're just idols, 
And we can oftentimes think this way too, even now with what you might call moral relativism. There's a lot of Christians out there who go, well, you know, I believe in God, and he's, he's, he's my God for me, but, you know, someone else, they have a God for them, and someone else has a God for them. And, and you almost like Christians go, well, I have my God, but other people, their gods are real for them too. And it's almost like the gods can compete or, you know, run against each other. And it's like, no, 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 no. The, there's only one God for everybody, whether you think it's true or not. And the way this can be expanded is if you've ever been in a, at a place um, where you've sensed a great like darkness, like a dark presence. I've been around the world in different places and when I, even in the United States in certain places, and I've sensed at, at times like this darkness, like God is just nowhere to be found here. You just, you kind of feel that. And until you've been in a situation like that, it's hard to really understand the feeling that you get. It's kind of like a dreadful thing. And yet at the same time, when you look around, if you're ever in a situation like that, just remember the trees, the dirt, the rocks, the plants, the animals, the people, the buildings, even the material that's made out of the buildings, all of that belongs to God. It was made by him. It comes from him. It is for him. It belongs to him. They don't belong to anybody else. They may be temporarily under the control of Satan. They may be temporarily confined or not used for the purposes of God, but that doesn't mean they don't ultimately belong to God. And so we have to understand that that's, this says in Psalm chapter 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it belongs to him. It's like when my kids were little, and they were, they were real little, and at times, you know, you, you send them to bed and they get scared, right? They say, come out, maybe because they just are using an excuse because they don't want to go to sleep, but they would say, hey, I'm scared. Well, what are you scared of? Well, I hear something in the closet, or I see something over there. And one of the things that I would try to say at times is I'd say, you know, you have to understand that this is my house, and there's nothing in this house that's more powerful than I am. Everything in this house belongs to me and does what I tell it to do except for you guys, <laughs> kids. <laughs> but other than that, this, I, I have authority over this place, so there's nothing in here that is stronger than me, and, and I love you, so you don't need to worry about anything. There aren't powers here that can overpower um, me. And so the idea is greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. It's that same kind of concept. But I want them to understand that metaphor that there is an owner of a domain that has power over the things within that domain so that they would understand that God owns the whole world and there's nothing to be afraid of, ultimately. But there's another principle at work as well that would be part of this knowledge, and I would call that knowledge number two, and that is this. Idols are only as powerful as you make them. Idols have no power in and of themselves. We assign power to them by how we revere them. Because the wood and the stone, just because it's fashioned into a face, it's still just a piece of wood. It's still just a piece of stone. So why fear it? And there's this beautiful passage in Jeremiah chapter 10 that basically sarcastically just cuts idols off at the knees in terms of its in the imagery. And understand that idols have captivated, and these false gods have captivated scores of humanity all throughout history. But listen to how the Bible deals with it. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. And they decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with a hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. And they cannot speak. They have to be carried for they cannot walk. Don't be afraid of them for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. This is so important. What is an idol? Is, what, what is it? 
You can't even walk by itself. You have to carry it. How pathetic is that? And you worship this thing? Look what it says in Isaiah chapter 41. Behold, you are nothing. This is to idols. You are nothing and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. In other words, only an idiot would believe in you. It's like this airline in Finland. It's called Finnair. And every year they do this thing on Friday the 13th. They recently, they said they're going to discontinue this. But for a long time they were doing this thing. On Friday the 13th, you could fly to Helsinki. And what they would do is they would, when you, you know, all the, air, the cities have little codes and stuff and the abbreviations. Well, the abbreviation for Helsinki is hell. Right, H-E-L. So what they would do is every year that there would be a Friday the 13th, they would offer flight number 666 to hell. <laughs> on Friday the 13th. And the media would capture this and go, oh, do you see what they're doing? And then they just see, you can take a flight on Friday the 13th on flight number 666 to hell. Would you get on that plane? Who has the... Who has the courage to get on that flight? Ooh, right? That's a good question. I mean, should you get on flight 666 to hell on Friday the 13th? Well, if you needed to get to Helsinki on Friday the 13th and they had the best deal on the internet, then take the flight. <laughs> Why not? And the funny thing is even some of you right now are going, oh, I don't know if I would do that. Really? So you're assigning power to numbers? You're afraid of numbers? What has, how has society conditioned you to, feel, to fear things that are not real? You say, well, what about 666? That's a number, right? Yeah, that's in the book of Revelation, and it has nothing to do with airlines. <laughs> John, when he was writing Revelation on the island of Patmos, never said, Thou shalt not get on flight number 666, or thou shalt face death. It doesn't say that. It's something totally different, totally different context, nothing to do with airlines. So why wouldn't you get on the flight? What are you afraid of? And it's the same thing with, you know, my wife and I, we celebrated our 19th anniversary uh, this past June. We got married June 13th, 1998. And you know why we got married on June 13th? Because we wanted to get married at the Westlake Inn in Westlake, California, and it was completely booked except for June 13th where it was wide open. Because <laughs> in all of Southern California, in one of the most primo places you could get married in that particular area, not in terms of price, but just the beauty and everything else around it in that area of, of the country, in a June wedding, no one wanted to get near the 13th. Because the number 13th, right, we'll take it. We'll take it. 13 has no power. And trust me, you know, we get in a fight or something like that. I've never, neither one of us ever in our 19 years have ever gone, I knew it was that 13th, man. We should never have gotten on the 13th married. Who does that, right? But people do. But yet everything in this world belongs to God. These, these things have no power. Why do we ascribe power to them? Now that being said, he goes on in verse seven. However, not all possess this knowledge. What knowledge? That everything belongs to God and was made for Christ and through Christ. They don't, not everyone sees it that way. Not everyone in the church understands that. 
So he says, but some through former association with idols eat food is really offered to an idol. See, they can't separate it. And their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do. He's like, look, everybody gets this. But, and here's the kicker. Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother from whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So what is he saying? Even though you have knowledge, and you're right, you're absolutely right in this. You get it. There are people around you who don't, who are Christians. And they see you eating over at, you know, Apollo's temple and bistro, and you're munching down on a gyro stuffed with lamb, and you're having a good old time, and they see you, and they can't dissociate the meat eating from worshiping a false god. And so when they see you, they don't see you as having lunch. They see you as compromising, as worshiping, and it messes with their conscience because they can't do that. They cannot get around it without it reminding them and taking them back. And they see you and they go, well, well now I guess, I guess it's okay to worship false gods, or, but I don't want to. And it, you're tearing them away from Christ when you do that. And he's saying, look, I want you to acknowledge that. Because in your head, you're right. You have the knowledge. You understand. But if you don't care that your friend is stumbling, you don't have love. So here's the big idea. Though I, could, I would say it this way. Looking out for others. In other words, being a good wingman, being a good friend, means at times I forsake something I technically have the right to do if doing it will make my brother or sister stumble and fall, okay? Looking out for others means at times I forsake something I technically have the right to do if doing it will make my brother or sister stumble and fall. So when I talk about stumble and fall, what we mean is that because the person cannot dissociate that activity with sin, it moves them into sin. Because you're, by you doing it, you're tempting them to do it. You're, you're, you're moving them one step closer to doing it, and they, they, they don't see that it may be right for you and fine for you, but it's not for them. So you sit there and go, well, gosh, this is a complicated issue, and how do we deal with this? Well, Probably one of the easiest ways for us to apply this, there's several ways we can apply this. There's all kinds of ways we can apply this to, to today. But perhaps the most obvious one for us would be in the area of alcohol. Because in our church, we don't have a problem with alcohol. We don't, we're not one of these churches that says you shouldn't drink because that would be an unbiblical statement because nowhere in the Bible does it say you shouldn't drink. That by the alcohol is, is allowed and as part of the Christian life. You can do it. However, what the Bible does say is do not get drunk on wine for that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. So we don't want to get drunk on the small S Spirit, but we want to be filled with the capital S Spirit of, of God. We want to, because just as the Holy Spirit controls the way that I walk and controls the way that I talk, alcohol controls the way that you walk and the way that you talk and everything else and controls your actions. And so we know this. So it's, it's okay. We don't have a problem at our church with people, you know, having a beer and having a glass of wine or whatever. That's not, that we don't have an issue with that. 
But here's the problem. We're a church that wants to reach out and bring all kinds of people who are far away from God because our, our mission is what? Helping people find their way to God. So there should be, and I know that there is, a certain percentage of people in this room who are either right now struggling with alcohol or who are recovering alcoholics. And the last thing a recovering alcoholic needs is to be around a bunch of people who are drinking. So in your connection groups, because we have connection group homework every week, as you know, and if you don't know what this is, this is basically for those of us who are in connection groups, you take this and you can fill out, and, and these are the questions that will be asked during the connection group, and you can apply this stuff in your discussions, but see, as we're getting in connection groups, the idea is that we're going to get to know one another, right? And as we're getting to know one another, we know our past, we know our history, we know our struggles, and so in your connection group, this is gonna be something you might have to deal with. And you might have to decide in your connection group how you're going to deal with this because if you have a closed group where no one else, which is fine because we have groups that kind of fill up and we want those groups to kind of stay tight and get to know each other and do life together. And you decide, hey, listen, we can, it's okay if we have some, you know, wine out or whatever on our connection group night, that's fine. But if you know someone in your group struggles with alcohol and you're still allowing alcohol in your connection group meetings, you're causing this person to stumble. You just are. Because we know that a recovering alcoholic can't have one sip of anything or they will go way off the wagon and it will destroy them. And you know, we have this kind of hypocritical relationship with alcohol in society anyway, don't we? I mean, especially in the military. You know, there's this idea, because the military, you know, has, has alcohol is so much a part of the culture. And yet, they acknowledge that 99% of all sexual assaults that occur in the military are alcohol related. So help me understand that. Well, we got to get rid of all the sexual assault, but, you know, hey, take a shot of this if you want to be accepted in this group. It's just the way, it's just the culture. It's the way that it is. And the society in general does the same thing. You know, we kind of go, we kind of laugh. Oh, yeah, Jimmy, man, he was just plastered last night. It was funny. You could hardly even walk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we sit there and go, oh, we got to do something about this drunk driving problem. You know, mothers against drunk driving. And this guy wiped out this whole family, and, and it's this terrible thing. And look how it, look what it does to, to uh, spousal abuse. Look what it does to child abuse. Look how it ruins people's careers. And we, we mourn and get all up in arms over the, the horrible things that alcohol does, but then we kind of laugh it off over here. It's hypocritical. And no one wants to draw the line and say, you know what? Alcohol, you're not going to get rid of it, but you should not get drunk ever, 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 ever. So I have a friend who probably understands this passage more than anyone I've ever heard. And his rule is this. When he is out in a public situation, like at a dinner or whatever, and they, he has no problem drinking alcohol, but his rule is this. The, whatever group he's with, if it's four people, six people, whatever, if there's someone in that group who does not drink, he will not drink because he does not want that person to be alone. He does not want that person to be the only one in a social situation not drinking. And when he told me that, because we were actually out in a social situation, and he said, hey, that's my rule. And I was like, I was like, man, that is an amazing, that is the perfect application of this passage. Is I don't, I don't need to know all the background, but if I know there's someone there who's not drinking, and maybe they might even say because of their conscience, because it's their struggle in their life, or because maybe their father, half the time it's because I don't want to be like my dad who was a raging alcoholic and I'm not going down that road. Whatever the case is, I won't do it. And so you're going to have to decide, because for us, this is the thing. At our church, anything that has a Compass Church name on it, we're not going to have alcohol at that function. We're not going to do that. 
If it's got our name on it, it's welcome to the public. Because here's the thing, we know we got alcoholic people all over the place, so we want to help them beat that by, by helping them to come to know Jesus as their savior and conquer these demons. Why would we invite people from the community who are trying to get away from that into an event where we then offer it to them? That's dumb. If the, you know what I mean? There's all kinds of other ways we can, we can impress, or impress people. So we decide not to do that. However, if it's not an ch- official church thing and, and, and you, or you're with a private group of people and everybody knows the situation, then you have the freedom to do that. But there's got to be love there that trumps your freedom and your ability to go, well, I just want to do this because it's my right. Okay, well then Paul's saying, fine, you can do it, but you have no love. You're not being a wingman. This is good stuff, Right? Yeah, well then, good, I set you up. Now I'm going to lob a grenade at you. Here we go. Because that one was easy. How about, another, how about another area that we could apply this? How about the way that we dress? Hmm, here we go. So, okay, so this cuts both ways, right? Men and women, right? This can be men and women. However, let's be honest, okay? If a dude is wearing something too short and too tight, it's like, get that guy away from here, Right? <laughs> If a woman is wearing something too short and too tight, it's like, hi, what's your name? Okay, I'm just being honest. Okay, that's just the way that it goes in society. So I'm just, I am a casual observer of human behavior. So let's not kid ourselves. So let's not kid ourselves here. So when we talk about um, how we dress, so, and, and so ladies, this is a sensitive issue for you guys, especially in light of all the stuff going on with Hollywood and everything else. And ladies are very quick to say, excuse me, but it's not my fault if you act like an animal. It's not my fault. It's not my job to control your lust and your sinful thoughts. And I absolutely 100% agree with that. that. That men, every man has responsibility for his own actions, his own thoughts, where his eyes go and whatever a woman is wearing or not wearing, he is still responsible for God for what he does in that situation. 100% agree. I also don't think that we should impose any kind of dress code because if you do that, you will end up with a burqa. You will. That's where, that's where legalism goes. If you want to see dress codes to their table, because there's no part of a woman's body that could be left exposed if you're trying to curb men's lust. That's why in the Middle East, if, if when you see, I've seen women in burqas and head to toe and their eyes are done beautifully, right, to make them alluring because it's the only part of their body that's visible. And even that, they d- get all decorated. It's just the way that it is. It's human nature. So we're not going to do a dress code, but then, the, so the question I would ask you ladies in particular is what is your motivation behind how you dress? What are you trying to accomplish by how you're dressing? Because if it is to draw attention to certain parts of your body, particularly so men can stare at it, then you have, that's between you and the Lord. And you, I, no one can tell you when you've crossed that line, okay? I'm not going to tell you when you cross that line, but you know when you've crossed it. You, you know, and you have to ask yourself the question, you know, do, do I want to be someone who is going around and where, where men, whether they're married or single, are taking their eyes off their spouse or off God and placing them on me, and I'm making their battle with lust more difficult to fight? Is that what I really want? And you just have to ask yourself that question and measure your own heart that way. 
because I'm not gonna tell you exactly what you should or shouldn't wear. But that being said, that's not really the strictest application of this passage. I thought about this a lot. That's, that's one thing to think about, but that's not, and by, and by the way, I'm not saying that you should be this person that has no sense of fashion or style. I think you should absolutely wear things that are, that, that are complimentary to you, that make you look good, that you feel good wearing. I, I have no problem with that. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But here's the question, because you know, even as a guy, as a dude, because I'm, I'm a pastor, but I'm also a dude, right? So, and I'll have, I'll have women come up to me and like, hey, Pastor Tim, how's it going? And I'm like, hi there, <laughs> how are you? You know, and I'm, um, do you need an extra shirt? Do you need a coat? Can I get you something? Because holy cow. And so I'm just being honest with you how it is. So ladies, you gotta think about that. But that's not even the strictest application of this passage. The question, ladies, isn't how you're necessarily coming off to other men. It's how are you coming off to other women? And here's what I mean. Again, we want to be a church that reaches out and brings all kinds of people in here. And so we should be having women who have come to this church who are young, brand new Christians who all their life have been told a lie that they're only valued by how they look on the outside and the things that they're willing to show and they're willing to do and all that kind of stuff. Because the society sexualizes women. Everybody knows this. So now they come to Christ, they come to church and they realize, oh, I'm more valuable on the inside than my outside. Right? So my inside is what God loves. And so I need to cultivate the inside and become beautiful on the inside. And that's going to affect how she dresses. So she's starting to, to see herself in a whole new way. Now she sees you and the way you dress, and you don't mean anything bad by it necessarily because you're more of a mature Christian. And you go, hey, I have the right to dress how I want to dress. It's hot outside. I look good. Here we go. But what is this other woman who's going, wait a second, I can't dissociate the way that the way you're dressing from the way that I've dressed in the past to get this kind of attention. The, the, that, that same kind of thing reminds me of my old life. So now she's confused because she's like, well, I guess it's okay to see yourself as a sexual object. I guess that's okay. I guess that's what even Christians do. But then, what do, but then how do I get past some of these areas of sin in my life? And what all that means for you, ladies, is a, is a conscious awareness that, that you're not just dressing for you. But you may, as a Christian woman, you may be dressing not just to, to, to be sensitive to the men, and you might say, I don't care about that, but what about the other women? So you, that, that's, that takes a maturity. There's a nuance there that's, that's different that most people don't think about. That we should have young women, especially our teenagers, who are looking to some of you ladies that are a little further along to say, what is a married woman dressed like? What is a woman trying to honor Christ dressed like? How does she carry herself so that she demands value being placed on her? More than just, you know, the looks. These are hard issues, but they're ones that you should think about because you are supposed to be a wingman. You are supposed to be someone that looks out for other people. And so again, this, does this cut both ways? It absolutely does, but this is one of those issues. So here's another one that came up in our discussion in this, about the sermon earlier in this week because we have these roundtable discussions and we kind of invite people. And, and, and so one guy who's a freshman at Grand Canyon University, and uh, he, was, he, was, um, he saw this passage. We, we were talking about it and putting some thoughts on the board, and he made a very good analogy or connection to this as well because he says, you know, in our group, we have a bunch of guys, and they're all Christian guys, and, and um, you know, we have a great time together, but as with men, a lot of times, you know, when 
men get together, the little banter starts, right? We, the way men connect with each other is by making fun of each other a lot, which is fine, totally harmless, but that can easily start going down the wrong path, right? And there's the insults, then the innuendos, and the language gets pretty loose, and all of a sudden there's like swear words, even among a lot of Christian guys. Well, he says, well, the problem is we got this other guy here who's new to the faith. He's a new believer, and he's been hanging out with us, and quite frankly, he's confused. Because he's like, I don't get it. I mean, I'm not expecting this prudish kind of talk where we never talk about anything real, but you guys don't sound any different than the guys in my old life. And he can't dissociate the friendly banter or some of the innuendos from everything else that went along with that when his old life before he became to Christ. So he goes, what's the difference between being a non-Christian and being a Christian? And these guys are over here going, well, who cares, man? It's not my problem. But it is their problem. If they're going to be a wingman, they need to say, hey, maybe this guy's conscience is weak. Every time he hears these things, it reminds him of his old life. It's like hearing that old song again, and he doesn't want to go back there. So what responsibility do we have to, to actually, when he's around, to speak in a way that's uplifting and building up so he, so he actually, because these guys have the privilege of knowing what actual real Christian conversation is like, of knowing what depth is and everything, because they've been a part of it. He hasn't. All he hears is the crap that these guys are talking about. So it's a sensitivity that, that, is, that takes maturity in order to really understand. And we know this. It's so funny because as a pastor, I mean, I've been in so many situations where, you know, I'm hanging out with some non-Christian and they drop an F-bomb and they know I'm a pastor. So they drop an F-bomb and they're like, oh, I'm sorry, you know? And I go, that's all right, man. I mean, I'm not 12. I can handle this word. You know, I'm not your grandma, you know? Um, but because they, but they, there's, there's something about our culture, even though it, it doesn't matter, it, it doesn't matter, Christian or not Christian, people know. People know. And so it's like one of the easiest ways to tell whether a person is a Christian or not is by listening to what comes out of their mouth. And even non-Christians are surprised at a person who says they're a Christian and has no control over their language. They just, they just are. They go, hey, look, man, it's all right for me. I don't subscribe to your faith, but you're not supposed to talk like that. They know. And so this is another area as well that it's just looking out for people and, 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 and actually getting my mind off myself and saying, is there someone whose conscience is weak and how does that impact my behavior? And by the way, the, the, the very people who may have weak consciences in your life may be the people living in your own home. Your wife or your husband is your biggest wingman, by the way. Now, we should have other friendships, but we live with these people. And sometimes there's gonna be some challenges there or even your children. It's funny, there was a movie that came out um, a couple years ago, and, and it was a little bit, it was a, it was a Marvel movie, and a friend of mine sent me a text, says, hey, you wanna go see this movie? And we go watch, go see movies a lot together. And uh, I saw the previews for the movie, and I was like, uh, you know, because it was, it was uh, even in the previews, it was pretty, um, there's a lot of innuendo and everything else. And, and I, you know, like for me, I can, you know, it's more about the experience of hanging out with a buddy and I can, I don't have a problem like watching certain movies or whatever else. And here's the problem I had. Here's the problem. At the time, I had a 14-year-old son who's now 16, but I have a 14-year-old son living in my home. And I don't hide stuff from him, you know? And if he goes, hey dad, where are you going? Oh, I'm gonna go see this movie with my friend. And you know, it's okay for me to see is okay for him to see. And I'm like, you know, I don't want him seeing that, but I also don't want him to, because he's here, his, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm responsible, you know? And so I, and I literally, and I said, well, I was gonna do the whole, hey, I'm really busy, text back, but I, I'm like, no, I'm gonna be honest, 
And I just said, hey, listen, I said, I appreciate the offer, because he really wanted to see it, this other guy. And I said, I said, the challenge I'm having is, is this is not a movie I want my son to see, and, and, and I, I just don't want him to see me seeing it, you know? And, and, but I felt weird, because I didn't want him to think like, well, I'm trying to be this, I'm judging him, I wasn't judging him for seeing it. He doesn't have a 14-year-old boy living in his home, I do. And, and you know, there, these are important things, guys, because some of the, some of the most um, sensitive people in our lives are our own kids. And, and you know, you, you, if you have alcohol in your home, that's fine, but they're watching what you do with that, man. And if you're getting tipsy, and you say, well, it's okay because I'm over 21, that's crap. That's absolute crap. You know what your kid's gonna do? You get tipsy, they're gonna get wasted. And I'll tell you why. There's a principle, and the principle is this. <clears throat> True leaders are always willing to give up some of their freedom so that their followers don't fall. You know why? You know why? Because followers always go one step past the leader. So if the leader, if the boss shows up at 8.30, it's because he's supposed to be there at 8.30. You can show up at 8.32 and you're okay because you're not the leader. But if the leader shows up at 8.32, you're going to show up at 8.35 because the boss showed up at 8.32, so it's okay for you to show up at 8.35 because the follower always goes a few steps past the leader. So, and if you don't think your kids are watching everything that you do, then you're, you're deceiving yourself. So we have to be a good wingman to our own kids and realize that there are f- uh, true leaders are always willing to give up some of their freedom so that their followers, i.e. your kids, don't fall. So this has to be motivated by love. The title of the sermon is Do This If You Want to Strengthen the People Around You. So you should be asking, do what if I want to strengthen the people around me? You should do this. Be willing to surrender your right to do certain things that grace gives you the freedom to do. If you want to strengthen the people around you, that means at times you and I must be willing to surrender our right to do certain things that grace, because we are not going to be some crazy legalistic church, Grace gives you the freedom to do. See, legalism ruins everything. And what a lot of people want in Christianity is they want like 10 rules of how to live so I can get to heaven. And so it's clear. Just give me the rules. But what happens is anytime you start focusing on the rules, it becomes all about the rules and you forget the gospel. And a lot of you came from those crazy whack churches. And you tell me about it. I came from a crazy church. Yeah, because they forgot the gospel. They didn't know how to live in tension. There's always gonna be this tension. But that's where relationships come from. That's why we get in connection groups where you can, if you have a friendship with somebody, you say, listen, man, you know, I'm I'm not judging you for going to this movie, but here's the problem. I got got my wingman, and I love this guy, and I can't, I just, I want to protect his eyes and his mind and everything else, and I I want, I don't want him to know, I just, and this guy goes, yeah, I get it, I get it. You know what I mean? And, and, and I don't, there, there's, a, there's a relationship there. That's how we do things in the context of relationship. Rules don't require relationship. Rules are rules. They're objective for everybody. What I'm talking about is very situational and requires nuance and requires care and sensitivity and more than anything else, what? Love. True love. And love is thrown, it's love is the lamest word. It's thrown around everywhere. They, no one, society doesn't understand what love is. Love means do whatever you want to do. Not, not here. Love means at times I won't do certain things. Now, we got to figure this out. You know why? Because we need leaders here at this church, man. And I, I love you. Some of you, you, it's time for you to grow up. And the best way to grow up is when you start taking responsibility for other people in your life, starting with your own kids, but even moving beyond that and the other people in your life that you know need to be more like Jesus and they're going to have to look at you because there's no one else to look at. 
This is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 1, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. In other words, Paul's saying, hey, I ain't perfect, but you, you, know, you need a model, so be like me and you'll become more like Christ. Ladies, some of you need to say to the younger women, follow me if you want to be more like Christ. You, you will not grow until you get a hand down. You will not grow until you find a wingman. You can't because there's no motivation to grow. And I'm telling you, we need leaders around here because we got stuff, man. Our counseling schedule is packed, packed. And it's not bad, it's good. Because for everyone that, that's, that's going, that's in some kind of counseling, there's probably 10 more that need to be and haven't because they haven't got the courage to say, I need help. But this series, and we know this, this series over the past bunch of months as we've been going through this intermittently through 1 Corinthians has kicked up so much craziness in people's lives that was always there, but now they're finally getting it up to the surface and God's doing good things. But we need help, man. We need leaders. We're tapped out. We can't pay everybody we want to be a leader. The ministry model doesn't work that way. So some of you guys in, in your places, many of you guys have been sitting here for a while and you say, you know, it's time for me to step up. It's time for me to start taking responsibility, not just for me, but for the people in my life. This is the command. You might have a lot of knowledge. Paul says, I don't care about your knowledge. I care about your love. And love at times means sacrifice, always means sacrificing for the people around you. We got to figure this out because here's the deal. Yeah, this is nice. This is a pretty good attendance for a Veterans Day weekend, second service. The first service was, I think, even bigger than this. Saturday's starting to grow. But guess what? We're wrapping up our campaign next weekend. We got to get out there because we have land we haven't built on that we own, not just to build buildings. I wasn't born to be a contractor per se, but I'll tell you this. We, gotta, we have a community to reach, and there's a whole lot of people. If we, if we succeed, and we, people understand the gospel around here, I promise you this, suicides will go down, divorces will go down, drug addiction will go down, depression will go down. And then all of these other things will begin to take place. We love the police, but we won't need as many of them because there'll be less people committing crimes because there will be more people loving Jesus if we succeed. But we can't succeed without you. And you're a part of this. And why are we here? Helping people find their way to God. So my challenge to you is will you commit to be a wingman today? Will you commit to say, I'm no longer gonna live for myself, but I'm gonna live for the other people around me? And that made me making some sacrifices of your freedoms. And I'll tell you something, I love America, man. I love this country. I am so proud to be able to serve this country. But one of the, one of the problems that independence can bring, an unintended consequence, is this idea of, I don't care about the rest of you, I'm doing my own thing. And that never works long term. So think about those things. I want to give you a chance to, to respond to this message. So if you would, go ahead and bow your heads and close your eyes right where you are. I just want to lead you through a brief moment where you can be alone with God and make a commitment right where you are just to, to recommit or maybe commit for the first time and just say, God, you know what? Help me be a wingman. Help me be a friend. Help me look out for the people around me and take responsibility for them. And if some of us in here have been really puffed up by all that we think we know, it's time to confess that. God, you don't care about my knowledge. The most brutal people in the history of the world have also been the most knowledgeable. Knowledge often produces brutality. The only effective counter is love. So ask God to make you a person who's willing to set aside some of your rights so you can bring along those around you. 
God, I confess times that I've just, I've been so proud of our freedom and liberty in Christ that I haven't taken this passage seriously. And I've thought, well, it's their problem. Their conscience is weak. Why should it bother me? I confess my lack of love to people over the course of my life that I haven't gotten this right. So make us people who understand the importance of being a wingman, of looking out for each other. What we could do, ah, what we could do if we just grasped this. Thank you for the men and women we have in this church, God, for what you've given to us. Help us to lead. Turn us into something we never thought we could be. For those here who don't yet know you, who want to make a commitment to you for the first time today, I pray that right where they are, they would just cry out and say, God, I surrender. Forgive me of my sin. It's not about rules. It's all about relationship. You love me. You set aside your rights. It came down from heaven and became a man and set aside your rights to die for me. May I follow suit and follow you and live my life for the welfare of others. God, thank you that you give us this truth. You give us this hope that we can have true meaning in life by how we live. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. Why not ask God to change your life so you can go and change your world for Him? To find out more about our church online, go to www.compasschurch.info and we'll see you next time.